Thank you, Bess. Well, I probably got more comments from uh, the message last week in relation to a dishwasher than I had ever anticipated. (laughs) That was last week, right? Um, I did not intend to start any household conflicts this week, um, but I can't make any promises. Uh, If you would, turn with us to Philippians chapter 2. This is the second of what will be a three-part message on Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, although this week we are focusing on verses uh, 5 through 8. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word, Philippians chapter 2. Father God, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to your word, that the truth would speak clearly to our hearts, that we would Be willing to listen and to obey what you have to say for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. This should sound familiar. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. So last week we took, that, we, we took a look at what it was like to have the attitude of the Christian. And the attitude of the Christian that we spoke of last week was, was oneness and lowliness and helpfulness. That is the attitude and mindset of a Christian. It's a mindset of humility. And John Calvin wrote that the humility to which he had exhorted them in words, he now commends to them by the example of Christ. Paul says, take this mind. Then he says, consider Jesus. So there's one perfect example for all believers. It is and will forever be the Son. See, he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the new and better Adam, the great high priest, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. Now, how many of you remember those those old bracelets that that we used to wear, the WWJD? Did anybody ever wear one of those bracelets? Harry and I both wore them. (laughs) 
they, they were big when I was probably in middle school or elementary school. And, um, you know, you wore it on your arm. And right before you hit your brother or right after you got in trouble, your parents would say, you know, now what would Jesus do? And, and, and I'm not sure that the bracelet worked for me that well because, um, you know, I was young and, and my brain didn't think very good. And also because I think I didn't really have a very good grasp on what Jesus actually did. What had Jesus already done? Well, today we're going to explore that question a little bit. What did Jesus do? And the answer is so much more than, well, Jesus ate his broccoli. Or or Jesus didn't fight with his brother. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And the commentator William Hendrickson said that it is exactly because Jesus is our Lord that he can be our example. If he is not our example, then faith is barren. Orthodoxy is dead. It's because he's our Lord that he can be our example. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, which mind was it? It was mentioned in the previous verses. This is a mind of oneness and lowliness and helpfulness. And if you are a believer, this is for you. It can be yours because it was his. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing through Christ. And if we're not in Christ, then we will not experience this mind because it's simply impossible. We may think we desire humility, but I've often found that it's because we want to be known for being humble. If I find myself telling you how humble I am, or how selfless I am, or, or if I find myself patting myself on the back for my own good deeds, then I have to wonder if I really know what true humility is. But what is true humility? What did Jesus do? He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. These are two things we'll focus on this morning. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. In three ways that he did each of those. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The first way that he emptied himself was he emptied himself of his heavenly glory. He was in the form of God, it says. The word form here is the Greek word morphe. And this is the essential being. Jesus' essential being was God. That is who he is and that is who he will always be. He was with God and in God in the beginning. And he held a position that is higher than we could ever even conceive of. The earth is his footstool. He is the everlasting one, the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, the beginning and the end. That is who he is. And yet, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus was God, but he did not cling to that. He did not use that to lord over his subjects. He did not seize onto it. See, we usually seize onto our best parts. We, we hold onto them. We pride them. We pride ourselves on our own God-given abilities and talents when really we had nothing to do with those things. And yet Jesus, though he was God, did not cling to his divine nature. See, I'm not God. But often I try to be one. 
You know, there's times when I grasp for or I cling to any type of control or power that I can possibly get my hands on. Those days when everything goes wrong, when it's just frustrating and you're tiring and you get home and you just want to have some control. And so what do you do? You grab the remote. Here's the one thing that will listen to me, the one thing that will do exactly what I tell it to do, right? It's my turn to dictate the term. See, I make a terrible God, and so do all of us. And Paul is not here saying that Jesus no longer was God, because that was his essential nature. That's who he was. He could not not be God. But he left his place in heaven. See, there Jesus had all authority. All wealth, all riches, legions of angels at his command. He was the revered one. He was in full power, glory, and splendor. And honestly, we can't even think of what it, would, what it must have taken him to empty himself of these things. See, he gave up being the sole object of heavenly adoration to being despised and rejected by men. In John 17, Jesus prays and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, he left the throne of heaven to pitch his tent with sinful men. He emptied himself of his right to heavenly glory. The second way that he emptied himself is that he emptied himself by becoming a man. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. See, being born in the likeness of men, found in human form. The term here for form is the word schema. This is different than the term earlier used for form, which was morphe. The morphe was his, his essential being. That was his form of God. And to this form, he adds the form of man, schema. William Barclay distinguishes between these two words by exclaiming that morphe is the essential nature, the outward manifestation of the inner reality. That's what morphe is. But schema, this is the outward form, which changes from time to time. So if we think about it this way, uh, the morphe of a human is humanity. But the schema of a, of a human is, is how we are constantly changing. You know, from baby to child to a young adult to an adult to whatever comes after that. See, that's our schema. That's, how, that's the part of us that is always constantly changing. See, without losing his divine nature, without losing the inner reality of being God, Jesus took on the form of man with all the limitations therein. See, he was tested and he was tried in every way just like us. Charles Spurgeon put this so beautifully. He said, the creator is also a creature. The son of God is the son of man. Strange combination. Could condescension go further than for the infinite to be joined to the infant and the omnipotent to the feebleness of a newborn baby. So the infinite became an infant, the son of man. And as a man, he was acquainted with sorrow. He experienced pain and loss. He knew rejection and disappointment, betrayal and agony, anxiety and fear. See, Jesus emptied himself. And he took on the form of a man, and not just a man, but of a common man. Jesus was not born in a palace, but in a stable. He was not laid to sleep in a bed, but in a feeding trough. He was born into a displaced family who then had to flee for their lives as refugees. He was called the son of a carpenter, and this was not some form of endearment. 
This was with indignance. Isn't he just a carpenter, they said about him. Now, don't think of somebody who built fine houses or amazing pieces of furniture. According to Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, uh, written around the year 160, Jesus made plows and yokes. That's what he was known for. Common agriculture equipment. Important and useful, but not distinguished. You never invited someone to your backyard to say, hey, take a look at this oxen yoke that I have. There was no glory in this work. There was no prestige. It was humble and common work. And he was a poor man. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says that, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He was rich but became poor, and so poor that he was constantly borrowing. Borrowing a place for his birth, borrowing a house to sleep in, borrowing a boat to preach in, borrowing a donkey to ride on, borrowing a room for the Lord's Supper, borrowing even at last a tomb to be buried in. See, he emptied himself to become a man, and also, thirdly, he emptied himself as man to become a servant. Taking the form of a servant. Here again we find that word morphe. This is in his inner reality, his essential being. Jesus was a servant. From the beginning, he was the willing servant that we read about in Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 13 it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. See, Jesus was in his nature the servant of the Lord. Now, if we turn to Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 through 28, we find this incredible exchange between Jesus and his disciples and his disciples' mother. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority among them. It shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples never quite understood this concept of service. They had hitched their train to Jesus. They'd been following him around for three years. And yet here's these two brothers and their mom asking Jesus for the two most important places in his kingdom. And this is not a demonstration of humility. It's just a simple power grab. Jesus could not stand this type of behavior because it wasn't in his nature. See, he had legitimate authority in heaven. All authority was his. But he did not go around attempting to make people submit to that authority. But he served the least of these by way of teaching and miracles. 
So who were concerned with making sure they have positions of respect and authority and power? Well, Jesus says here it's the, it's the rulers of the Gentiles, the Romans. Also the Pharisees were. Jesus said, you know, don't take, a, take the important seat at the table, but take the least important seat. When you have a dinner party, don't invite over your rich friends who can invite you back to their homes. But go out and invite the poor, the people who can't repay you. The first shall be last, the least will be greatest. So the disciples spent all this time with Jesus and they never caught on. You know, some things are better caught and not taught. Well, he was throwing it out there and they just weren't catching it. Being a servant is not a part of his nature. Or being a servant is not a part of our nature. It was his nature. And it requires a humbling of ourselves. In John 13, the Apostle John records the example that Jesus set for his disciples by washing their feet. Verses 12 through 12. 12 through 16 reads, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the, second, the second century commentary on the Old Testament, the Midrash, taught that no Hebrew, even a slave, could be commanded to wash someone's feet. Not even a Hebrew slave could be commanded to wash someone's feet. And yet this was customary at a meal. When you had someone over to your home for dinner, there was this expectation that someone would be there with a basin of water to wash your feet as you came in. And yet the disciples had not made this arrangement. This was something that they ought to have done. Now, if this was me, if this had happened to me, I might have done the same thing too. But, you know, I probably would have huffed and puffed a little bit. You know, moved my chair back really loudly. Gotten down on my feet and kind of... And glared at my disciples as I went about washing each of their feet, right? Oh, yeah, it wouldn't be service with a smile, but it would be service. I'll do it myself. But instead, here's Jesus. That's not what he does. Jesus washes the feet, not just of men, but of arrogant and prideful men that had just moments earlier been arguing about who was the greatest. He even washes the feet of the one who will betray him. It's incredible. So Jesus immediately puts them in their place, not with a stern word, not with a glare, but in the most humble manner that they are nearly speechless. Only one of his disciples can even manage to say anything, which is Peter saying, Lord, I can't let you do this. It was the ultimate act of humility, and he did so willingly, gently, and intentionally. That's what it looks like to be a servant. He came to be, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He emptied himself. So he emptied himself and he humbled himself. Three ways that he humbled himself. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient. Romans chapter 15, 1 through 3 says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good 
to build him up. For Christ did not come to please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. See, he did not please himself, but he humbled himself. Humbled means to be made low. There are lots of different experiences in our life that humble us. Like the first time you realize that there are other kids out there that are smarter than you, or faster than you, or or better looking than you. That's humbling. Uh, My first semester of college, I was humbled. You know, all through elementary school and high school, I was able to, to make good grades without putting in any work at all. None whatsoever. I didn't read for tests except for the spark notes. I was a really poor student, but I somehow figured out how to make decent grades. And I heard from people that had gone off to college before me that college would be very similar to that. Um, Now, I don't know where those people went to school, but it was not the school that I went to. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I do say that the first semester of my freshman year of college, I legitimately majored in PlayStation. That, that, that Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4, that's what I played any time I was in my room. You know, every scene, everything else seemed to be going along great until that first round of exams hit. And I was not used to seeing the letters that I was now seeing coming back towards me. Um, but even then I figured, well, I can pull them up. You know, these are just some arbitrary exams. They don't really mean anything. At the final time I can pull them up, but at the end of my first semester, I was incredibly humbled. I wasn't used to seeing only consonants on my <laughs> report card. Um, and, and, and just a word of warning to those of you who are about to head off to school for the first time, it is a lot easier to bring your grades down than it is to bring them up. I, I was humbled, and you could say I humbled myself, but not in a very intentional way. See, Jesus was not voluntarily was not involuntarily made low. He made himself low. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to God. In Luke 22, verse 41, we find out what that obedience truly looked like. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like giant drops of blood falling down to the ground. Number two, he humbled himself to the point of death. Isaiah 53:10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He humbled himself to the will of the Father. He prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, but not my will. It is remarkable to think this fact, that Jesus did not get what he wanted. He did not want to die. He did not want to go to the cross. He was terrified of what was to come. But he was obedient even in prayer. Not my will, Father, but yours. He humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. See, this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, we see that God promises to Adam that his offspring, their feet would be bruised, 
but in doing so, the serpent would be crushed once and for all. He was obedient to the point of death. And think of it like this. Jesus did not have to die. He knew no sin. He did not have the sinful nature that we have. He was not under the curse. And yet, although he knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. K.S. Woost put it this way, the only person in the world who had the right to assert himself waived his rights. The only person in the world who had the right to assert his rights waived them. See, he did not have to die, but he humbled himself. Number three, he humbled himself to death on a cross. See, death on a cross was painful. It has been said that to die by crucifixion was to die a thousand deaths. It was the most torturous form of execution yet invented, and it was not to be used on Roman citizens except for military deserters. In the article, there's an article in the Journal of Royal Society of Medicine that says that listed nine different hypotheses about Jesus' precise cause of death, including asphyxiation, heart failure, a blood clot in the lungs, and hypovolemic shock in which severe blood and fluid loss prevent the heart from pumping enough blood to the body, causing organ failure. Some researchers conclude that condemned prisoners such as Jesus most likely died from some combination of various life-threatening conditions, which would set in progressively during crucifixion and gradually overwhelm their bodies. See, we can't even accurately portray the horribleness of the crucifixion and its effects on the body. See, artists throughout history have painted these crucifixion scenes and have made crucifixes, but as one physician in Indiana who studies the crucifixion put it in the newspaper, he said, our crucifixes are much too pretty. I remember seeing the movie The Passion of the Christ for the first time. I remember being there in the theater and, and, and being appalled as, as possibly the most violent thing that I had ever seen in my life was played out in front of me. And there's parts of the movie that I still have to just force myself to watch because I want to just look away. And afterwards, I was reminded that this is just a movie. The real crucifixion was far, far worse than what we could depict. It was painful, and it was shameful. This was not a silent and private suffering. It was incredibly public, and it was so shameful that it was impolite in Roman society to even mention crucifixion. To polite Roman society, just the mention of the word was an obscenity. Isaiah fifty-two fourteen says that as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was so bloodied and beaten and bruised that he no longer looked human. John Calvin said that for by doing in this way, for dying in this way, he was not only covered with ignominy in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is assuredly such an example of humility as ought to absorb the attention of all men. It is impossible to explain in it 
words suitable to its greatness. He humbled himself to death on the cross. So what did Jesus do? Let's go back to that first question. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. And here we are called to do the same. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So we cannot take our cross and follow Jesus unless we ourselves are empty and humble. Men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. When each one is willing to be the least, that's what it looks like. Are we willing to set aside our desire for power and control? Are we willing to give up any claims to ourselves? Are we willing to become servants? Will we obediently submit to whatever thing that the Lord has asked of us? See, few Christians are called to live lives of comfort and privilege. It will not always be pleasant. It will not always be easy. But it will always have purpose. Take this mind among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, you have given us the perfect example in your son, Jesus the Christ. He is our ultimate example in every way except in his redemptive acts, Lord. He is the only one who is able to suffer and die on our behalf. And Father, we desire to be like him. We want to follow his example. Empty us of ourselves. Allow us to be humble in your sight. And thank you for the redemptive work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, he took on our sin. We take on his righteousness. It's the most uneven exchange possible. And we are forever grateful. We pray this in his name. Amen.